Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And as we turn our attention now to the New Testament, our reading today will be from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 24 through 47, where we'll learn about wrath. Today Jesus is the Savior. Tomorrow He will be the judge. Even death cannot keep lost sinners from the judgment, for He'll raise them up from the dead. There is no escape except for faith in Jesus. If you worship God the Father, you must also worship the Son. And if you dishonor the Son, you dishonor the Father. Those who claim to worship God but ignore the Son are not even worshiping God as they suppose. They're only fooling themselves. How can anyone deny that Jesus is the Son of God when so many witnesses affirm that He is? John the Baptist, the miracles, the Father, and the Scriptures. But when people believe on Him, they have the witness within themselves. Well, with that, let's turn our attention now to the reading of the New Testament. May 8th, the New Testament. John chapter 5, verses 24 through 47. I, Jesus, tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in Himself, and He has granted the same life-giving power to His Son, and He has given Him authority to judge everyone because He is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just, because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else is also testifying about me, and I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist, and his testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so that you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. But I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me and the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message in your hearts, because you do not believe me, the one he sent to you. You search the Scriptures, because you think they give you eternal life. But the Scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me, because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe, 
for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Psalm 106, verses 1 through 12. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Who can list the glorious miracles of the Lord? Who can ever praise him enough? There is joy for those who deal justly with others and always do what is right. Remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come near and rescue me. Let me share in the prosperity of your chosen ones. Let me rejoice in the joy of your people. Let me praise you with those who are your heritage. Like our ancestors, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. Our ancestors in Egypt were not impressed by the Lord's miraculous deeds. They soon forgot His many acts of kindness to them. Instead, they rebelled against Him at the Red Sea. Even so, He saved them to defend the honor of His name and to demonstrate His mighty power. He commanded the Red Sea to dry up. He led Israel across the sea as if it were a desert. So He rescued them from their enemies and redeemed them from their foes. Then the water returned and covered their enemies. Not one of them survived. Then his people believed his promises. Then they sang his praise. Proverbs chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like cancer in the bones. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker. But helping the poor honors him. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesChanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio, and have a blessed day. Before we get going, um, let's, uh, let's just bow our heads. I want to pray for us real quick. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for John, for uh, just reading the scripture, and for the band uh, leading us in these songs that are just speaking the gospel. And uh, I just thank you for the opportunity that we have to just pray and encourage these families tonight and um, these young ones. I just pray that you would just help them and help us to raise these children so that one day they would be able to call on your name and that you would seek them out. And so, God, we just thank you for your grace. I pray that in the next couple minutes, we would be encouraged by your word and that you'd speak. Amen. Amen. So last week, um, as, as John said, we've been in the book of Acts. And last week what we saw was we saw the, the early church appoint deacons or lead servants to, to basically lead in service, to lead various ministries. And the particular issue that was being addressed was the fact that there were widows that were being neglected. 
And basically the church then stepped in to address this issue and by appointing deacons to serve these widows. And so we saw an early example of the role distinctions between a pastor and deacon. And so the pastor's main role we saw was to labor in the preaching and teaching and prayer along with leading the whole church. And the deacons were appointed to lead and address specific needs, specific um, opportunities that needed addressed within the church community. And so Stephen was one of the deacons that were appointed last week. We saw that in Acts 6, 5 where it said, And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so... So we saw Stephen, and this must have been a man who um, had already been displaying the gospel in his life, serving the church, because the text specifically says that this guy was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. And so we see Stephen, a lay person, as one of the main characters in this week's text. And that's really one of the big things I want to highlight. And I'm going to read 8 through 10 again. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, and then all these folks, they they disputed with him, they rose up against him, but they couldn't withstand the wisdom of the Spirit speaking through him. So look at this. Picture this, right? Stephen's full of grace and power. The Holy Spirit's doing these great signs and things through him. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's standing up for the faith, for Christ. And he wasn't a pastor, he wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon in the church. He was commissioned with caring for widows, which I'm sure he was doing, right? I'm sure he was doing that well. But here we see him speaking, performing signs and wonders. God is moving in and through him. And really what I want us to know, notice is that this signifies a huge change that's happened since Jesus lived, was crucified, was buried and resurrected. See, before Christ, there were men, there were priests Um, who played the role as mediator between the people and God. And they would make sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sins. And they would stand between God and the people. The people didn't have this personal communication with God the Father. The people did not have the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they relied on these earthly, this earthly mediator, earthly mediators as priests. And uh, they relied on the temple and the sacrificial system and the Old Testament law. But now, since Christ, the ultimate mediator has come, he's made a way that all believers now would have access to God. And so theologically, we call this the priesthood of believers, And the priesthood of the believer is the belief that Christians have direct access to God through Christ without the necessity of any other mediator. Whereas the priesthood of the believer affirms that each Christian has a spiritual ministry to perform. That we're all welcomed in. We're all then called and commissioned to live out um, God's mission. And that looks like certain ministries in our lives. And so this idea comes from texts like 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5, which says... As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what this is saying, what this means is that because of Jesus and because of the Holy Spirit, which indwells in true Christians, believers now have access to God without having to go through another person, such as a priest, or or to make sacrifices. 
So Jesus made, Jesus made and he paid the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus paid the price so that we could have access to God. So that when we as Christians, when we pray, God hears us. This means that we live not as a people who are far from God, right? But God is with us. The Holy Spirit's dwelling in us. I mean, we've, we've mentioned this a few times, but remember back with me uh, to what Peter looked like not long ago in Luke 22 when a, when a little servant girl questioned his discipleship and he denied Christ. But now we see throughout Acts him calling the religious leaders out and speaking and acting with boldness. What happened to this man? Peter saw the risen Christ and now the Holy Spirit is dwelling within him. We see the same thing happen to Stephen in this text. But what I want us to notice, hear me, Stephen is not a pastor. Stephen is not an apostle. Stephen wrote no book of the Bible. Why am I highlighting that? Because what I want you to hear is that Stephen was a lot like you. You see that? You don't have to cower in fear. You don't have to second guess yourself. You don't need to feel inadequate. If you're a Christian, God has uniquely made you. God loves you. He cherishes you. The Bible teaches that you're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. What this means is that every human being has intrinsic value because we're made uniquely in the image of God. God cherishes you. You have purpose. You have calling. And really what I want to encourage, maybe this is for somebody here, is to quit waiting for some crazy word from God to do something. God has already called you. He's already called each of us. Maybe at some point you'll get more clarity as to what that looks like, but you already have a purpose. In general, it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The the thematic text, the overarching text of Acts is found in chapter 1 verse 8. Be reminded of this. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So the big question might be for you, what are we to do? We are to be witnesses. Well, where am I to go? How should I do it? We are to be witnesses of Jesus. And practically, a lot of the time, what this is going to look like is simply taking the time to listen to other folks. To listen to their stories and to tell your story. To tell your story. To share what God has done in your life. God has changed me. God is changing me. I used to be this kind of person. I used to do these sorts of things. I used to be this, you know, I used to do these terrible things. I used to be riddled with guilt. I used to be riddled with shame and fear. But Jesus loves me and he's changing my heart. Jesus has changed my life. Listen, I mean, a good place to start is to simply listen to people's story and share your story. Share your story. Be a witness of what God has done and is doing in your life. Do you trust God? Because if you trust God, God's going to do his thing, man. He's going to do his thing. He, He will change people. He might even heal people. Who knows? But trust him. Fundamentally, at the core, we are called to be witnesses of Christ. That's fundamentally who we are and what we're we're supposed to do. Meaning our core purpose is to be witnesses of God's glory, of God's grace, of God's power. You have gifts. You have skills. You have passions, friends. You do. And they're given to you by God and they're given to you for the glory of God. Interesting text, or a part of the text I want to highlight here is in verse 15 it says, 
and gazing at him, right? All the folks were looking at him and it says, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's kind of interesting, right? But what's happening here is Stephen's filled with the Holy Spirit on a spiritual level, but in this moment, it's actually affecting him externally. It's, it's affecting him physically. Once again, what this is, is it's signifying the distinction between God's work and that of the religious leaders. Because even though, even though Stephen was inwardly and outwardly filled with the Holy Spirit, he's opposed by these religious folks. And I want you to hear this. This is sad. This is sad. The religious leaders are supposedly trying to follow the same God as Stephen. They're doing all of these rituals to appease the God of Moses and the God of Abraham. But when he shows up in flesh, they kill him. And when he inaugurates his church, they persecute it. So the first big idea is that we now have access to God because of Jesus. We're called to worship and be witnesses. Let's start there, church. Let's start there. How can you do that tomorrow? How can you listen and interact with the folks around you and just be present with folks? And then, and then if you have an opportunity, share what God's done in your life. Share what God's done in your life. The next section, and, and John didn't read it, I didn't read it, because um, we're literally, during this week, we're supposed to cover about 70 verses, and that would have taken forever. And so basically, the part that you didn't hear, and you can go back and read it, is I've, I've titled, Stephen's Long Speech. Stephen's Long Speech. I wasn't feeling super creative at 11.15 um, p.m. on Thursday when I was writing this part of the sermon. But, but the big idea here is, this is the longest sermon in Acts. And interestingly, it's given by a deacon in the church. It's given by a lay person. This is cool. And uh, Ben Witherington, he wrote, this speech is not an apologetic one in which Stephen is defending himself against these charges, nor is it in essence either law or temple critical. Rather, it's critical of those Jews who down through the ages have rejected God's prophets and messengers and their messages, and critical of some of these Jews' assumptions, including assumptions about God, dwelling in the temple. And so what Stephen does is he chronicles through major happenings in the Old Testament. And so we hear briefly about Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and so on and so forth. And he basically is telling the religious leaders, hey, I'm not making up a new story. This is an old, old story. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these other stories. And so this is what happens. And we see this in Acts 6, 12 through 14. And they, the religious leaders, stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this, referring to the temple, this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So once again, the religious folks are all mad. They're ticked off, right? They're freaking out over the temple, which they think is holy, this physical place. And Stephen responds in verse 48 of chapter 7. He says, Yet the most holy place does not, the most, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? 
I love that. Yeah, all this stuff you see, I made all of it. F.F. Bruce, a theologian, he says, a major theme of the speech is its insistence that the presence of God is not restricted to any one land or to any material building. So they're mad about the temple. And what Stephen is basically saying is, God is not, he's not restricted to a specific place. The religious leaders were missing the entire point. God is with us. God wants to be in relationship with us. Because of Christ, his spirit dwells within Christians. That means when we work, when we go home, when we laugh, when we cry, all these things now become spiritual. All can be seen in light of the gospel. God is with us and within us. Our one mediator and priest is Jesus Christ. And then a really interesting thing. We see how Stephen's death points to Jesus. Warren Wiersbe says their treatment of Stephen parallels the way the Jewish leaders treated Jesus. First, they hired false witnesses to testify against him. Then they stirred up the people who accused him of attacking the law of Moses in the temple. Finally, after listening to his witnesses, they executed him. Do you see? Stephen points to Christ even in his death. The religious leaders supposedly in an attempt to preserve the law break it by murdering this godly man. Isn't that absurd? Right? They were so concerned with preserving the law that they explicitly broke it in the process. I'm really mad that this guy keeps telling me that I murdered Jesus so I'm going to murder him. It's ridiculous. This is absurd. But this is what happens in man-made religion. This is what can happen when we lose sight of the gospel. See, Stephen died for his faith. He didn't die without hope. He didn't die in vain. Somebody had already gone before him, paving the way, right? Somebody had already walked the dusty road to Golgotha. Someone has already been falsely accused, betrayed, mocked, and beaten. Somebody had already paid the price for mankind's sin. Jesus, in lavish grace, has died the death we deserve to give us the life he deserves. We're loved. We're being pursued. And Stephen knows that. In verse 59 and 60, it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the only way he could have prayed that prayer. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? He knows the gospel in his heart. He believes that Jesus is the Christ. He fell asleep, meaning it wasn't the end for him. Stephen went to be with God. It wasn't the end for him. They could take his life, but they couldn't take his soul. He was going to be with Jesus. Somebody once noted that a heckler once shouted to a street preacher, why didn't God do something for Stephen when they were stoning him? And the preacher replied, God did do something for Stephen. He gave him the grace to forgive his murderers and to pray for them. Who does that? That's grace. Isn't that the character of our Savior? Right? What did Jesus say when he was dying upon the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus had been falsely accused and betrayed by the men who he poured his life into. And he prays that God would forgive them. That's the character of our God. That's the character of our King. That's the character of Jesus. And then lastly, this is cool, we see the result of Stephen's martyrdom. Another quote, For the church in Jerusalem... The death of Stephen meant liberation. 
They'd been witnessing to the Jew first ever since Pentecost, but now they would be directed to take the message out of Jerusalem to the Samaritans and even to the Gentiles. The opposition of the enemy helped prevent the church from becoming a Jewish sect and encouraged them to fulfill the commission of Acts. Furthermore, finally, as, as far as Saul was concerned, the death of Stephen eventually meant salvation. He never forgot the event, and no doubt Stephen's message, prayers, and glorious death were used of the Spirit to prepare Saul for his own meeting with the Lord. God never wastes the blood of his saints. Saul would one day see the same glory that Stephen saw and would behold the Son of God and hear him speak. Think about this. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, right? And we forget to see him in this light, but check this out. This is more evidence of God's grace. Within this text, I don't know if you noticed it, but Acts 7.58 said, Then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So who is affirming this murderous act? Who is standing by watching, approving what was taking place? Who is angry at the new Christian church, so much so that they were willing to persecute and ravage it? Well, right here we see that Saul is standing in the midst of this situation and putting his stamp of approval on it. And for those of you who don't know, Saul's name changed to Paul when he became a Christian. But this is Paul standing here approving this murder of Stephen. We see Paul mention it in greater detail later in Acts. Hear this in Acts 22.20. Paul says, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. God graciously saves and empowers for ministry someone who'd previously killed Christians and killed spirit-filled men like Stephen. One last long quote, and then we're almost done. This is good. James Montgomery Boyce says, In this life, we go through many situations in which we're on trial. And although we try to do our best, we often fail and we're even misunderstood. We get discouraged. But we have to remember that the trials that we go through in this life are not the final trial of history. They may be important. We want to do as well in them as we possibly can. That is why we have to be strong and we have to bear a faithful testimony in all circumstances. But the trial that really matters, the verdict that counts, is the verdict that is given by the Lord Jesus Christ and by God the Father. I do not know what the Lord Jesus Christ says when He looks down and sees us and pleads our case before the Father, though I'm sure it varies in every case. But I do know that if we are His, He owns us and He pleads our case in heaven. He says, in effect, this one is mine. That one is mine. I died for these people. My death covered their sin. They're clothed in my righteousness. As long as this is true, we can carry on. We can fight the good fight of faith, stand firm to the end, and bear a victorious testimony. Friends, in the end, we will be with God. In the end, what was unjust will be made right. In the end, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our fear will be cleansed away and all will be made right. Our sole purpose now is to be witnesses of the risen Christ. We labor towards that end. We find true joy in that aim. We can know that God is for us because of Jesus 
it was said, God does not call all of us to be martyrs, but he does call us to be living sacrifices. In some respects, it may be harder to live for Christ than to die for him. But if we are living for him, we will be prepared to die for him if that is what God calls us to do. Stephen was a layperson and a servant of the church. God did mighty things in and through him. All of us are capable and called to ministry. Many of us will work jobs for the glory of God, will be witnesses of Christ in the workplace by working hard, by showing up on time, by being a good employee, by encouraging fellow colleagues, by sharing our faith in word and deed. But we are called to be witnesses. And you have gifts, you have passions, you have talents, and and those abilities are things that God has given you to be witnesses of his glory and his grace. Embrace your calling. If you're a Christian, you're not called to comfort. If you're a Christian, you're not called to apathy. I just don't care. Or you're you're, you're not called to simply living out a dutiful expression as a mere Sunday believer. Your whole life is God's. Begin to live in light of that, and I promise you'll find purpose. I promise you'll find challenge. I promise you'll find true joy. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you invite us into your story. I pray that we would begin to see the trials and struggles and just the the toils of life as reminders that we're not in control. We press against them so hard sometimes because we want to be God. And sometimes our prayers look a lot like asking you for our idols. Asking you to give us the things that if we really got would ruin us. And so God, I pray that wherever we are tonight, that you would present yourself in a tangible way. And that we would just put our hope in you. We'd lay our our deadly doing down at your feet. We just trust you. We begin to engage in Christian community. We begin to pursue what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, with you. That you'd begin to break down all of our false sense of control, all these fears that linger us trying to prove ourselves through the stuff that we have, the things that we say, how we appear to people. It doesn't matter. In the end, we're all going to die. And you're calling us here now in this season to be witnesses of your glory. I pray that that would become more real to us. Amen.